0: Like my Facebook page, at Brian McClanahan. And, of course, subscribe to my YouTube page, at Brian McClanahan, where you can watch this podcast. Go to brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. You'll find all kinds of ways to support the show. Click on that support tab. You can uh, throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can also get your Brian McClanahan book plates. If you got one of my books, one of my seven books, you can get my autograph with that. Also, go to mcclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll at mclanahanacademy.com. And those that do enroll do get a free course, 10 Myths of American History. I've also got uh, eight courses, I'm sorry, available for purchase now. Eight courses. So if you want to support the show and get something awesome in return, then go to mclanahanacademy.com. Also go to learntrue, T-R-U-E, True learntruehistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. It's a great way to support the show as well. Okay. All that said, oh, and by the way, brianmclanahan.com, you got the shop tab. I forgot about that. Shop tab. Click on that and get your Brian McClanahan Show logo on all kinds of cool stuff. Another great way to support the show and advertise the show. And of course, always share it around on social media, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you uh, wherever you post. Share the Brian McClanahan Show. Okay, let's talk about the topic for the day. And this is about a week lag. And, and when I say that, the the issue was hot last week, but I didn't have time to, to uh, podcast about it last week. So I'm going to talk about it today, and it's something that, Actually, referenced in my founding father's guide to the Constitution almost, well, it's about eight years ago now when that particular book came out, eight years. Um, So I was already ahead of the curve. But this has to do, of course, with Trump's uh, use of force against Soleimani and Iran and the Congress or the congressional response, I should say, to that use of force in invoking the War Powers Act or the War Powers Resolution, and, of course, issuing another resolution through the House of Representatives that the president's going to have his power of the sword restrained by Congress. And it's interesting how this worked out, because immediately the Republicans circled the wagons and said, well, that's unconstitutional. In fact, not only is what you're doing unconstitutional, the War Powers Act or the War Powers Resolution of 1973 is unconstitutional. So I wanted to talk about that War Powers Act of 1973, because again, I referenced it in my Founding Father's Guide to the Constitution. I want to talk about where that came from, why it's there, and also, is it really unconstitutional? So I want to start with a Fox News article that appeared. uh, Let's see, this was published. Let me look at the date here. Uh, Well, I don't have a date on it when it's published. Uh, Let's see, it was published on the 10th, I guess, or the 11th the 10th, uh, by Fox News, January 10th, by Andrew O'Reilly. I'm not familiar with Andrew O'Reilly, but I'm going to read some of this. And it says, quote, The House of Representatives on Thursday voted in favor of a war powers resolution meant to limit President Trump's military action toward Iran following an escalation in tensions between Washington and Tehran. Resolution passed 224 to 194, mostly along party lines. But both parties had some defectors. Eight Democrats voted against the measure and three Republicans voted voted in favor of it. Independent Representative Justin Amash, who left the Republican Party last year, also voted in favor of the measure. The resolution is non-binding, but is meant to reassert congressional authority and rebuke Trump's decision to take out Iranian General Soleimani in a drone strike last Friday. When he traveled to an airport in Baghdad, Iraq, Trump did not consult with congressional leaders ahead of the attack that killed the Iranian military leader and afterwards sent Congress a notification explaining the rationale, but kept it classified. The resolution requires the president to consult with Congress in every possible instance before introducing United States Armed Forces into hostilities. Now, this is, a, this is an important part when he said he, he sent Congress a notification explaining the rationale, but kept it classified. So, I'm going to get into this with the War Powers Act of 1973. In that particular case, he followed the War Powers Act to the letter. He doesn't, According to the War Powers Act, he doesn't have to consult with Congress ahead of time. And he sent them a notification. I'm going to read part of the War Powers Act so you can see. He sent them a notification saying this is why he did it. Of course, Congress cannot release that information. The measure also aimed to handcuff Trump when it comes to future strikes. So, first of all, he followed the letter of the law with the War Powers Act. He did it. He did that. Okay, But I'm going to talk about this War Powers Act in a minute. Um, the resolution says the Congress has not authorized the president to use military force against Iran. The measure directs the president to terminate the use of United States armed forces to engage in hostilities in or engage or against Iran in, or in any part of its government or military, unless there is a specific blessing by Congress. White House Deputy Press Secretary Hogan Gidley responded with this. The president has the right and duty to protect this nation and our citizens from terrorism. That's what he continues to do, and the world is safer for it. This House resolution tries to undermine the ability of the U.S. armed forces to prevent terrorist activity by Iran and its proxies and attempts to hinder the president's authority to protect America and its, in our interests in the region from the continued threats. These congressional actions are completely misguided. In fact, this ridiculous resolution is just another political move because under well-established Supreme Court precedent, it's non-binding and lacks the force of law. Um, now, I want to get into what, I'll get into this in a second, but here's the real rub for the Republicans. They're saying that the entire War Powers Act is unconstitutional. It's unconstitutional. Now, Matthew Gates, or Matt Gates from Florida, who was the darling of the Republican Party while he was defending Trump, Against impeachment, now has received their extreme ire because he took the floor of the of the House and said this. And if our service members have the courage to fight and die in these wars, Congress ought to have the courage to vote for or against them. I'm voting for this resolu- re- uh, resolution. So now, every talking head, conservative talking head, the media hates Matt Gates because he had the gall to oppose the party. So let me get down to the part that I'm going to talk about, this War Powers Resolution, whether it's constitutional or not. So, O'Reilly continues, The first War Powers Resolution was passed in 1973 in an effort to prevent presidents from using the military without congressional approval. Since then, questions of presidential compliance have become common, with controversy stemming from former President Bill Clinton's actions in Kosovo and former President Barack Obama's operations in Libya. I mean, this is 100% accurate. Congress has allowed its war powers role to erode since the passage of the authorization for use of military force in 2001 to fight terrorism after 9-11 attacks and passage of another AUMF for the invasion of Iraq in 2002. Trump has slammed the war powers resolution as unconstitutional and called on it to be repealed. And then Donald Trump tweets a quote from John Bolton, of all people. John Bolton says, quote, This is Trump's quote says, smart analysis, I fully agree, of John Bolton's quote that said this. The 1973 War Powers Resolution is unconstitutional. It reflects a fundamental misunderstanding of how the Constitution allocated foreign affairs authority between the President and Congress. The resolution should be repealed. Now, let's talk about that part and let's talk about this constitutional part of the War Powers Resolution. First and foremost, I will agree with John Bolton. That the war powers resolution is unconstitutional, but not for the reason he says it is. In fact, the reason John Bolton can never be confused with a constitutional scholar. The war powers resolution is unconstitutional because the war powers resolution unconstitutionally punts congressional authority to the president of the United States. In fact, it gives the president too much leeway over using the sword unilaterally. If you look at how the constitution was ratified, the war powers resolution is problematic. Because it gives the president power of the sword without consulting Congress. You see, this is the real problem with the War Powers Resolution. Not the fact that it hamstrings the president, what he can do with using force, but because it gives the president too much power over the use of force. So John Bolton is right it's unconstitutional, but he thinks it's unconstitutional because it encroaches on presidential authority. No, it's unconstitutional because it gives the president too much authority. So let's read this War Powers Resolution that probably nobody bothered to go out and read. This is uh, um, directly from the War Powers. I'm, I'm going to go back to uh, the beginning of this particular War Powers Resolution. Um, and this is uh, fifty U.S. Code fifteen forty one. Purpose and policy. Um, and I'm sorry, I had it. I didn't have it set where I wanted it. So it says this: <clears throat> Congressional Declaration, Part A. It is the purpose of this chapter to fulfill the intent of the framers of the Constitution of the United States and ensure that the collective judgment of both Congress and the President will apply to the introduction of the United States Armed Forces into hostilities or into situations where imminent involvement in hostilities is clearly indicated by the circumstances and to the continued use of such force in hostilities or in such situations. Part B. Congressional legislative power under necessary and proper clause. Under Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution, it is specifically provided that the Congress shall have the power to make all laws necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers. Not only its own powers, but also all of the powers vested by the Constitution of the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. The constitutional powers of the President as Commander in Chief to introduce the United States Armed Forces into hostilities or into situations where imminent involvement in hostilities is clearly indicated by the circumstances. Our exercise is only pursuant to, one, declaration of war, two, special statutory authorization, or three, a national emergency created by an attack upon the United States, its territories, or possessions, or its armed forces. So what the Congress did in 1973 is say, okay, these are the three instances where the president, or we should say where you can introduce powers, right, introduce war or the use of the military, war powers. And the president's commander-in-chief can follow these things in three ways. One, if there's a declaration of war. Two, if there's specific statutory authorization, meaning coming from Congress. Or three, where well, there's a national emergency where the United States has been attacked. So when you look at that particular rationale, and I'm going to get into what the Founding Fathers said about this, and I'm going to quote from my Founding Fathers' guide of the Constitution. When you get into that rationale, was this a particular case where the United States armed forces were under I mean we had a guy riding in a in a convoy now trump has said that there was attack there were attacks on uh, the united states armed forces that there was imminent attacks on embassies but now he's backtracked and said well i mean even if there wasn't i could do this anyways because he's been called out on this so, well wait can you prove that and he's there really wasn't any even Pompeo has said, well, I don't really know if there was any imminent attacks. This was an attack on Soleimani, um, really without any kind of basis for it under any rationale, particularly the War Powers Resolution. So the next part. The President, in every possible instance, should consult with Congress before introducing United States Armed Forces into hostilities or into situations where eminent involvement in hostilities is clearly indicated by the circumstances. And after every such introduction, shall consult regularly with the Congress until United States Armed Forces are no longer engaged in hostilities or have been removed from such situations. So, it says here, the President should, in every possible instance, consult with Congress before introducing the United States Armed Forces. So, if he just had a simple conversation, I mean, the the, the language here is pretty vague. He could just have a conversation with someone and say, yeah, I've consulted with Congress. Or he could consult with one side of the Congress, certain members of Congress, and say, I consulted with Congress. doesn't say who he has to consult with in Congress. And we're not certain he didn't talk to somebody in Congress before he did this. The presidents work around this and say, well, this is eminent. I, I couldn't really, it, it wasn't possible for me to get to this. This had to be done right now. Um, We had one window of opportunity, so we took it. So there is a work around this, what the president did. And he did provide information to Congress after he did it in accordance with the War Powers Act of 1973. Because when you go to the next part, it says, A, written report, time of submission, circumstances necessitating, necessitating submission, Information reported in the absence of a declaration of war in any case in which United States Armed Forces are introduced, one, into hostilities or into situations where eminent involvement in hostilities is clearly indicated by the circumstances, two, into the territory, airspace, or waters of a foreign nation while equipped for combat except for deployments, which relate solely to supply, replacement, repair, or training of such forces, or three, in numbers which substantially enlarge United States Armed Forces equipped for combat already located in a foreign foreign nation, president shall submit, within 48 hours, to the Speaker of the House of Representatives and to the President pro tempore of the Senate, report in writing setting forth: a) the circumstances necessitating the introduction of the United States Armed Forces; b) the constitutional legislative authority under which such introduction took place; and c) the estimated scope and duration of the hostilities or involvement. So, the question is: Did Trump follow the letter, letter of the law here? Well, I mean, he did. It says that he has to submit this writing within 48 hours after this is done. So he did that. So he followed the letter of the law. He could say that he didn't have time to consult Congress. I mean, there's ways he can get around all these things. And then it says, other information reported. The president shall provide such other information as the Congress may request in the fulfillment of the constitutional responsibilities with respect to committing the nation to war and to the use of United States Armed Forces Abroad. And then, of course, he has to give periodic reports to that as well. So what has happened with this War Powers Resolution? It came on the heels, of course, of the Vietnam War. And Richard Nixon, it was thought, was enlarging the war in areas where it should not be enlarged, namely in other parts of Southeast Asia. Um, And the Congress was getting a little cranky about this. And so they passed the War Powers Resolution in 1973. Of course, at the same time, though, Rick Nixon is drawing down our forces in Vietnam, which he had promised to do in 1968 when he was first elected. Of course, 1972, Nixon is reelected in a landslide. This only, again, leads to Watergate. Uh, But He's reelected in a landslide, and the the Democrats in Congress were freaking out because they didn't know it was going to happen. And, of course, there was some thought that Nixon was going to enlarge the war in Southeast Asia and other areas like Cambodia and Laos, and he had no authority to do so. Uh, Or he was using, he was uh, transporting troops through Cambodia and Laos, or whatever the case may be, that there was a clandestine war going on outside of Vietnam. That was the fear. And, of course, it was True. I mean, this is what was going on in Vietnam at the time. So that's where this particular War Powers Resolution comes from, from the fear of the Democrats that Nixon was going to enlarge this war and create all kinds of problems. As I'm going to show you, the reason this War Powers Resolution is unconstitutional is not because it it curtails the power of the president, but because it gives the president too much leeway in engaging united states armed forces in hostilities but i'll do that on the other side of the break i'll see you in just a minute let me talk to you for a minute about McClanahan academy i know at the beginning of this particular podcast or this video i talked about McClanahan academy but let me go into a little more detail about why i think you should sign up for it and why and why i created it first A little bit about me. I have a Ph.D. in American history from the University of South Carolina, and I've taught in the college environment for 20 years, and I've seen college students get worse over time, the curriculum get worse, and students are being indoctrinated more than educated now in our higher education system, whether it's high school or college. So I wanted a counterweight to that, and this is why I created the McClanahan Academy. Now, first, it's always free to enroll at McClanahan Academy. You sign up. It's free. And I give you a free course, 10 Myths of American History, when you do sign up. So it's a great way to get an introduction to what I do. But I've got eight courses for sale there and more forthcoming. All of these courses are designed to give you the non-PC version of American history, to take the red pill, so to speak. And I've got two courses in particular, my U.S. History Survey courses, which are designed for homeschoolers. So if you're a homeschooler and you want a good curriculum and uh, my family has homeschooled. All of our children from the beginning, and you want a solid history curriculum. That's why I designed the United States History eighteen to eighteen sixty five and eighteen sixty five to present. You've got enough material. You've got lesson plans. You've got uh, tests. You've got reading material. You've got reading seminars. You've got thirty six weeks. If you take them, buy them both. You've got thirty six weeks of material, and it can be used as a high school history curriculum. Or if you're just a lifelong learner, you can use it otherwise. But It's a great way to get a real history education devoid of Marxism and progressivism and political correctness. So sign up at McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Again, always free to enroll, and I'll see you there. All right, we're back on the other side of the break, and we're going to talk about what the founding generation said about the powers of the sword for the executive branch. In fact, when you go back and you look at the debates surrounding both the drafting of the Constitution and the ratification of the document, which is really where it got all of its muscle anyways, and how the ratifier said it would be interpreted, because they're having to publicly present the powers of the government. They said, well, I mean, this is how it's going to be implemented. This is what we're going to do when this government's in place. These are the powers the Congress, the president, Supreme Court are going to have when we have this general government in place. And that's how we should look at the document. Um, That's how we should adhere to the document, how the people that wrote it said it would be interpreted, not how we think it should be interpreted today, uh, because that's what you do with a document. That's what you do with a contract, which is what this is, a compact between the states, so ratifying the same, as it says in Article 7 of the document. So what did that compact mean? Uh, what did this what did this contract between these states mean how did the power the powers would be implemented? how what did that mean so let me go back again this is from my founding fathers guide to the constitution if you don't have that book you should get it you should also take my american constitutions course at mclanahanacademy.com where i get into this on page 62 i say this according to the constitution congress alone has the power to declare war. This power faced little debate during the Philadelphia Convention, and most of the founding generation believed vesting this power in the popular branch of government was preferable to handing over the military to the executive. I mean, this is 100% without question the case in 1787 and 1788. There were other issues, of course, that I get into with this, but I'm going to focus solely on that. I'm not going to talk about calling up the militia or anything like that at this point. But just the power of the sword being wielded by the executive branch. So, let me get into what happened in Philadelphia. On August 17, 1787, John Dickinson moved that Congress should have the power to make war. Charles Pickney opposed giving this power to the lower house. In his drafts for a new constitution, Pickney proposed to vest his power in the Senate. He reasoned that the Senate as a representative of the states and being more acquainted with foreign affairs would better safeguard the power of war and peace. His colleague from South Carolina, Pierce Butler, argued that the executive should have the power to make war. So here's one of the members of the Philadelphia Convention, Pierce Butler of South Carolina, saying, no, no, we should give that to the executive branch. So there were those that thought this might be a good thing to do. But they were in the vast minority because immediately Elbridge Gary of Massachusetts was shocked and declared he never expected to hear in a republic a motion to empower the executive alone to declare war. Both Gary and Madison moved to replace make with declare but supported the executive having the power to repel sudden attacks. So here's the key. Did, Did Trump repel a sudden attack from a guy riding in a convoy in a foreign country? Was there a sudden attack? Now, I mean, the Trump administration could make the case, well, yeah, there was a sudden attack. It was going to happen. But now they're saying, well, there really wasn't a sudden sudden attack going to happen. I mean, we kind of made this up. The same thing happened in, in, of course, the Gulf of Tonkin incident with LBJ. The same thing happened with the weapons of mass destruction with the Bush administration, I mean, this is par for the course now um, with these presidents not really having any justification for anything. I mean, it happened with Clinton and uh, Kosovo. It happened with Obama and Libya. I mean, there was no sudden attack. There was no imminent danger for the United States of America, particularly in the territorial boundaries of the United States of America because of Soleimani or because of any of these other individuals. Now, if you said... This was a terrorist cell that was getting ready to land in the United States and commit a t- an act of terror. Well, that's, a, that's repelling a sudden attack. If the president had actionable intelligence on that, hey, we got these guys coming in the United States and they're going to cause some harm to the United States or civilians or infrastructure, whatever it is, and we had to take those people out, well, then no one would have a problem with that. I don't think there's one individual say, well, we should have let them land and then the Congress should have debated about this. And then, No, if the military knows this is going to happen, and it's clear that this is going to happen, then those people should be dealt with forcefully. But that's not what was happening here in Iraq with an Iranian general who was in a convoy coming from an airport. Now, you could say he was planning these things. Well, how do we know this? The president now and Pompeo and others have said, well, I, I don't, It doesn't really matter if he was or not. He's been called out on this and shown that perhaps he's stretching the truth just a little bit here. Was, there, was this a situation where the president was trying to, to distract from the issue of impeachment? Who knows? Um, but certainly, we're in, a, we're in a situation now where this is a little bit, his, his argument is a little threadbare. It's, it's, not, it's not working well. George Mason summarized the general sentiment of the delegates when he said that he did not trust giving the executive or the Senate the power of war. Mason said he was for clogging rather than facilitating war, but but for facilitating peace. Most also agreed that declare was a narrower term than make and thus limited the power of Congress as well. Brutus wrote in 1788 that the American war powers should differ from their European brethren. Quote The European governments are almost all of them framed and administered with a view to arms and war as that in which their chief glory consists. They mistake the end of government. It was designed to save men's lives, not to destroy them. But to furnish the world with an example of a great people who, in their civil institutions, hold chiefly in view the attainment of virtue and happiness among ourselves. Think about that quote now. I mean, this guy would be considered to be a radical, you know, libertarian or radical leftist, or I mean, who, who particularly from conservative ink, they would call this guy commie or something. This is. This is an anti-federalist, what he was called. He's really a federalist, but he's an anti-federalist. He's saying, look, we should have a country that facilitates peace amongst ourselves and amongst everyone else. We should facilitate peace, but we don't do that very well, not with a national authority. And that's what Brutus would have also said. Well, you can't have top down. You're not going to have peace if you have that. The founding generation desired peace, but these men also understood that security demanded the power to wage war if necessary. As Madison argued in Federalist 41, security against foreign danger is one of of the primitive objects of civil society. The power requisite for attaining it must be effectively codified into the federal councils. So, how are they going to do it? And of course, this became the rub, as I say in the book. Now, To the man, the founding generation wanted peace. They understood that the general government. They had, these these men just came through a war. They weren't they weren't nineteen sixties hippies who you know were just uh, you know putting flowers in their hair. These were men of action in time of action. When it demanded action, they took it. I mean, if no. Look, this is one of the few generations in American history that did that. Hey, look, they're violating our rights, our constitutional authority. The the parliament is this is an imperial problem and we're going to take up arms against the government to do it to to ensure that our rights are protected i mean that's not a bunch of spineless men yellow-bellied men who are who are afraid of some conflict i mean these men were certainly fine with it but what they wanted was to ensure that this would not happen again and that the General government would not abuse power. This is what they wanted. They wanted to ensure that would be the case. They did not want an abuse of power. So when you look at what they said about the executive branch, I mean, this is where it gets really interesting now. So what is the executive? What is the role of the executive in all this stuff? By Article Two, Section Two, the President is Commander in Chief of the United States Military and Head of State, when treaty, with treaty-making authority and, and appointment powers. But even those powers are circumscribed by both Congress and the states. Congress declares war and appropriates money for the military. The President simply executes its will. This is how it was. This is the argument to the states during ratification. One of the greatest fears of the founding generation was an executive with unrestrained power of the sword. Charles Pinckney expressed alarm early in the convention that the executive powers might extend to peace and war. Both his plan for a new constitution and William Pinckney's New Jersey plan called for the executive to be commander-in-chief, but Patterson's plan prohibited any of the executives, because there was multiple executives, from personally taking command of the army. This, he hoped, would quell the potential of a military dictator. Opponents of the constitution, such as Luther Martin of Maryland, echoed the restrictions set forth in the New Jersey plan. Others, such as Gilbert Livingston of New York advocated a constitutional amendment that would have prohibited the president from commanding the military in person without the consent of Congress. Robert Miller of North Carolina argued that the president's influence would be too great in the country, and particularly over the military, by being commander-in-chief of the Army, Navy, and militia. He thought he could too easily abuse such extensive powers. End quote. Probably so. Probably so. And I think he's been proven correct. George Mason in the Virginia Ratifying Convention spoke for the majority who opposed executive war powers when he said, quote, he admitted the propriety of this, of his, the president being commander-in-chief, so far as to give orders and have a general superintendency. But he thought it would be dangerous to let him command in person without any restraint, as he might make a bad use of it. Mason, like Livingston and Miller, thought Congress should be required to authorize personal command of the military for so disinterested and amiable a character as George Washington might never command again. James Iredell argued that the president's power as commander-in-chief was sufficiently guarded by the Constitution. So here we go. A very material difference may be observed between this power and the authority of the King of Great Britain under similar circumstances. So he's comparing the president to the King of Great Britain. He's saying the president doesn't have these kind of powers. The King of Great Britain is not only commander-in-chief of the land and naval forces, but has power in time of war to raise fleets and armies. He has the authority to declare war. The president has not the power of declaring war by his own authority, nor that of raising fleets and armies. These powers are vested in other hands. The power of declaring war is expressly given to Congress, that is, to the two branches of the legislature. The Senate, composed of the representatives of the state legislatures, the House of Representatives, deputed by the people at large. They also have expressly delegated to them the powers of raising and supporting armies and of providing and maintaining a navy. So this is all within the powers of the Congress, James Iredell said. And, of course, James Iredell later served on the United States Supreme Court. This is not a nobody. George Nicholas of Virginia, who was, of course, in favor of the Constitution, said this. The Army and Navy were to be raised by Congress and not by the President. To possible danger, any commander might attempt to pervert what was intended for the common defense of the community to its destruction. The President, at the end of four years, was to relinquish all of his offices, But if any other person was to have the command, that time would not be limited. So his argument is, well, look, after four years, this guy's gone, and so we're going to get somebody else in there, and it won't be a problem. Hamilton, of course, supported it. Um, He said that, look, I mean, the president only has power of the militia when called to actual service of the United States. And he said the propriety of this provision is so evident in itself and is at the same time so cons- cons- uh, consonant to the precedence of the state constitution in general that little need be said to explain or enforce it. But George Mason didn't believe that. He said, The liberty of the people has been destroyed by those who are military commanders only. The danger here was greater by the junction of great civil powers to the command of the army and fleet. Although Congress are to raise the army, he said, No security arises from that, for in a time of war they must and ought to raise an army, which will be numerous or otherwise according to the nature of the war, and then the presidents command them without any control. And then I foreshadowed some of the problems here in the next paragraph, and I'm going to wrap this up with this. He said, or I said, this is one area, however, where proponents have been generally vindicated. Only two presidents have personally commanded the military, George Washington and James Madison. The real threat to constitutional war powers is not personal leadership by the, executive, by the executive, but the passage of the War Powers Resolution in 1973. This authorized the president to send the military into action abroad without immediate congressional approval. It clearly violated the Constitution as ratified. And a large executive powers beyond those of the founding generation were comfortable vesting in the president. As Ariel said, the president cannot call out the Army and Navy. So the War Powers Resolution, which Trump has said is unconstitutional, which John Bolton has said is unconstitutional, which Republicans are running, this is unconstitutional. Uh, Sean Hannity, it's unconstitutional. It's unconstitutional not because it restrains the power of the president, but because it gives the president too much power to do all kinds of things for 60 days without any congressional action. The president can do anything, essentially, make anything up and send the United States Armed Forces into a foreign country and use it domestically, whatever it wants, for any reason, for 60 days without any congressional authorization. That is wildly unconstitutional. This is something the founding generation never would have agreed to. In fact, if they thought that was going to be a case, they would have rejected the Constitution outright. It would have been rejected in Philadelphia. It would have been rejected during ratification. So the real issue here in Soleimani or any executive abuse, whether it's Obama and all of his drum drum strikes or the Clintons, or the Bushes, or Reagan, you go back all the way, any of the presidents. The real problem is not that the president has this War Powers Act to restrain him, is that the War Powers Act gives the president too much leeway. We should be interested, as Matt Gates said, in trying to restrain the powers of the president every way we can, and do the right thing, which is ensure that the executive only can do what Congress allows it to do in terms of war. The president does not make war. And this is what he has done with Soleimani. And this is not just Trump, but it's what Obama did. It's what Bush did, Bush the Younger. It's what Clinton did. It's what Bush the Elder did. I mean, George H.W. Bush said, well, I gave you a courtesy call. That's all I needed to give you. This is ridiculous. And Trump has basically said the exact same thing. So here is the real problem in American government. It's that we have too much executive government. The War Powers Resolution gives the president too much power. So that's why it's unconstitutional. Not because John Bolton said it's unconstitutional. John Bolton would never be confused. As a Const- John Bolton wouldn't know the Constitution if it smacked him right in the face. John Bolton never met a war he didn't like. No one should listen to John Bolton on anything. Why this guy still hangs around like a cockroach is beyond me, but he is. It's because he's attracted to power. Regardless, that's my take on the entire issue of war powers and what Trump has done. I already talked about Iraq and why why Iraq is so important. Um, Iran's a whole other story, but I've already talked about that. So this is this war powers thing. I'll see you next time on the Brian McClanahan Show.